Hey, Kate. Hey, Daniel. Uh, how you doing? I am doing all right, you know, uh, all things considered. I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. If you hear uh, uh, some pause, I am fostering a dog who is uh, very concerned if I leave the room. So she's here. Great. Yeah. 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 I hear some pause. I'm glad, you know, <laughs> I'm glad it's just from interspecies love. Um, I should also say, you know, I think we, the last few weeks I have expressed um, just the horror and despair at the police violence that we've been seeing everywhere and the brutal repression of protests. But I think right now I'm starting to really see the upside of this uprising, you know, getting some victories and uh, sense, if not immediately, at least in the medium term of possibility of, you know, winning victories upon victories and really um, building a much more intersectional and powerful movement for racial justice, economic justice, climate justice. I don't know. It feels like this uprising is working. At least that's that's what I'm seeing right now. And especially after, you know, weeks of just being in lockdown and the end of the primary season, I feel like there's just so much energy and, and organizing that's injected um, a sense of hope that felt like it would not come back in, uh, in, in, in a very long time, which, you know, I'm just very grateful to everyone who's been uh, in, in the streets for making new things seem, seem possible in a way that they, they didn't a couple weeks ago. Yeah. So keep going out into the streets and, and there are some, you know, local primaries still ongoing. So if that's the case in your jurisdiction, you know, uh, lots of opportunities to vote for climate justice uh, and racial justice, and of course, to fight for them on the streets. Um, so with that, you know, welcome to Hot and Bothered. We are a podcast on climate politics in the times of coronavirus and in the times of uprising. We are hosted by Descent Magazine, and our producer is Colin Kinneborough. This week, we are talking to Jason Perez, who is a senior research analyst at ACRE, that's the Action Center on Race and the Economy, studying the connections between police violence, mass incarceration, and economic justice. And Jason has really emerged as a leading voice in explaining the current uprising, both from his perspective as a scholar and as an organizer. So, yeah, you know, a lot of the climate movement is still catching up to the um, Black-led uprising. Uh, at the same time, of course, there are a lot of elements of the climate movement who've been there all along, especially, of course, those coming out of the environmental justice movement. And what we wanted to do today, um, speaking with Jason, was to connect some of these conversations around police funding, police violence, uh, the uprisings against those, uh, with broader questions of political economy. Think about you know, how the whole U.S. economic system is organized in terms of, of racial capitalism and how institutions like the Federal Reserve Bank are deeply implicated in that. Um, and at the same time, then, if we understand the economic system as being sort of saturated with, with white supremacy, I think we can then start to think about a Green New Deal as needing to tackle the white supremacy uh, that pervades those institutions. Um, so that, you know, at the end of the day, if we are actually going to win the the kind of war against fossil capital, we're going to at the same time have to win a war against racial capitalism. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and we talk about this a bit, a bit with Jason, but I think it's also, you know, something that just has been, I think, so clear the last the last couple of weeks is that there's just a really rich sort of body of, of, of policy work and thinking um, that has, you know, very, very clear connections to, I think, the work folks who are pushing for a Green New Deal have been doing for a long time, I think, you know, in particular about the sort of framework of divest-invest, um, 
which, you know, I, I won't, I won't sort of spoil, but divesting from the things we don't need, um, which, you know, include police and fossil fuels and investing and, in, in, you know, what makes communities really genuinely safe, which is, is, is not those things. Um, and I, you know, I, I think really thinking through just how, how much common cause there is, uh, it's, it's, it's really powerful. And I think is, um, as we were saying, just, just really helpful in this moment where, um, there is, uh, there, there are just so many people mobilizing and, 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 and mobilizing, you know, I think in a, in a deeply, you know, multiracial way, there are folks kind of coming from, you know, all, all walks of life who, who are, are protesting in, a and it's very really of, of collective liberation, um, and, and recognizing, um, just how pervasive, uh, you know, divide and conquer has been, how successful strategy that has been for, um, you know, every, everyone from fossil fuel companies and, and, and you know, breaking up uh, multiracial organizing and coal mines in, in the 20s, people like Robin Kelly have written about, um, to, you know, today where public goods that serve everyone are starved to undermine on the basis that they are only serving people of color and, 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 and black folks in particular. And so I think this is a moment where, where that is really being thought through in a serious way. And, and I'm excited that, that Jason is here um, to talk about, you know, the, the long history of that work and, and, and really, you know, what some of these policy, um, policy conversations are. Absolutely. Um, and I just have to very briefly shout out my friend and comrade, uh, Maurice BP Weeks, who uh, works with Jason. Um, at Acre. And, you know, Maurice is on the policy team of the Homes Guarantee Campaign, as I am. Uh, you should definitely follow Maurice on Twitter. He's very funny, uh, at MO87, MO87. So sorry, Maurice, I hope, you know, you don't mind uh, a few new Green New Dealer followers. We do really stand Stan Aker here at here at Hot and Bothered. Uh, I would I would just recommend all their work. It really, you know, shaped, I think, in particular, the thing that that I have found useful in reporting is is the research they've done on uh, on Puerto Rico and and you know how Wall Street has just looted uh, the the island of Puerto Rico for a very long time uh, and so yeah please please check it out I think it's it's really you know great work in general and especially uh, especially at this moment yeah standing acre and we will post to them uh, in the show notes so um we're very excited to get to the interview before we dive in. We do have an announcement to make. We're going to be wrapping up the season of Hot and Bothered after the next episode. So we've got today's show, and then we've got one more show next week, which will just, uh, Kate and I will reflect on um, events of the last couple of months. Um, we're going to take some time to focus on our other projects, aka we both have book deadlines. Um, and we're also kind of up to our eyeballs in Ramp Pesto. Um, so there's that. So much, so much ram pesto and uh, sourdough starters to to work our way, our way through. You know, yeah, loaves of bread every day to eat for the cause of climate justice. You know, it's like it's true. I have a whole case of seltzer with my name on it. <laughs> that all that was joking, but I, you know, um, we're we're not actually a ramp pesto operation over here. We actually have book deadlines and. Uh, I will speak for you, Danielle, but editors who are uh, increasingly worried about about um, that. So, you know, hopefully you will see a, a book from me in, in the next uh, next several months. <laughs> We're, we, we need these books and we need your book, Kate. Um, so, um, yeah, a huge heartfelt thanks to everyone who's pitched into uh, to our Patreon to make the podcast possible over the last three months. If you are one of those generous people uh, look out for an email in the coming week about logistics and all that. 
yeah, we really appreciate all the support that has made the show possible. It really would not have happened uh, without you. And for everyone who has pitched in, we do have a happy hour coming up later this month. As a, as a kind of send-off uh, for the season, at least, that will be on June 22nd. Yeah, we are really looking forward to that. And um, it is still, of course, not too late to help us spread the word about the show. Rate us, review us on iTunes, uh, tell your friends about our show. It's, you know, uh, I think these episodes will, will last um, for at least a little while. And tweet uh, at us or about us at, with the hashtag hotbotheredclimate or send us an email at hot.bothered.climate at gmail.com. So without further ado, let's get to our conversation with Jason Perez. Jason is a senior research analyst at ACRE, the Action Center on Race and the Economy, studying the connections between police violence, mass incarceration, and economic injustice. Previously at the Cook Center on Social Equity, Jason did research on the racial wealth gap created by housing discrimination against Black homebuyers. Before becoming a researcher, Jason was a lead organizer for SEIU, Local 73, and BYP 100. These days, besides his research work and writing for magazines like Jacobin, you can find him rapping with the rap group BBU, as well as organizing with the Afro-Socialists and Socialists of Color Caucus of DSA. Jason Perez, welcome to Out and Bothered. Uh, Thank you for having me. So to start off, I just wanted to hear what your last couple of weeks have been like in Chicago and, you know, what are you seeing at protests there? Ooh, yeah. Um, what a time to be alive. Um, so, I mean, we're seeing just basically protests every week, you know, several times a week. Um, you know, at a certain at a certain point, I mean, especially two, about two weeks ago, they're, they're happening every day. Um, and you know, the tactics are a variety of things, you know, it's, you know, more of like on the spectrum of like nonviolent protests and just kind of um, having targets like police stations and areas downtown or, you know, just this past Saturday, there was like a really dope protest around um, Cook County Jail, you know, just to kind of, you know, push people on the, on the, on the idea of defund like defund jails and prisons also you know um and and then there's still you know elements of like militant property destruction and it runs that spectrum and i think you know a lot of the protests at this point um have kind of moved out of the kind of you know nonviolent, violent binary and understanding like that you know the strength of our our, our protests and when, when we do them well is um when we have that spectrum we support it um, while not getting into like forms of adventurism, you know, and just kind of like going off, you know, but um, I think at least in Chicago, it's been far better about like, you know, we don't cooperate with cops. We don't let cops co-opt the protests. We don't kneel with cops. We don't do, you know, all these other things that um that sometimes some areas have been doing, um, the protests have been good not to do. And that, and that's from the kind of some of the protests that are related to CTU and cops out of school kind of protests and more formal structure-based organizing to like the spectrum of kind of activist, random people organizing. And I think too, the other, um, the other really good thing has just been, um, you know, just like random people who don't consider themselves activists or never seen themselves as movement people or whatever, like calling protests and having it happen, you know, whether it's in like, um, there's this alderman on the north side, you know, her, her area covers um, Saugan Ash, which is like, 
you know, like this white middle class area and someone randomly called a protest on her office to like support defund the police legislation in, in, um, in the city council. And then all of a sudden, of course, there's like this like huge battery of officers on bikes, you know, surrounding the, the aldermatic office, you know, but, um, you know, a bunch of us were just kind of like, oh, who'd call that? Who did that? And no one knew. And that was like a great thing. And like, that was like, you know, that's the type of energy and type of, you know, momentum that we want to continue to have and that we have right now. Yeah. I'm wondering for folks who just might not be familiar with Chicago politics. I mean, there's just been so much organizing in, in the last several years, especially, but, you know, going back decades. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how is some of the, um, the, the momentum that was built around protest against the, the murder of Lacan McDonald around sort of, you know, longtime abolition organizing there. Uh, how is that sort of showing up in, uh, in, in, in what's been happening the last couple of weeks? Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I, yeah, we're definitely building off of that. I mean, I, I, I do want to, you know, give agency and just like, and kind of like almost like theoretical space of like, you know, there is a, a quality spontaneity to it and a quality of just people just wanting to come out to come out to do it. Right. Um, but I think also then there is um, forms of abolitionist organizing, whether it be YP 100, BLM Chicago, um, you know, breathing room, Asada's daughters, the no cop Academy um, campaign, the Bayanita campaign. Um, you know, so we're all in, in similar networks, even if we're not necessarily organization bound. And, and at times I think we, we don't want to be so organization bound. We want to be more about, um, having open enough, wide enough campaigns where people can just join in um, and participate in as much as possible. But I think those experiences have given us like the organizing muscle to be able to respond to this moment um, and also know how to escalate that moment. And then also like having organizations like DSA and then having like six socialist aldermen, um, I think, you know, really help to like connect all the dots of like an inside outside strategy. Um, yeah. So, Jason, the demand that's risen to the top of these protests has been to defund the police, as you've just kind of mentioned. Can you give us a sense for the recent history of this demand? You know, like, where does it come from and what does it mean? You know, I would argue that, you know, the demand itself is rooted in abolitionist organizing, you know, like the most modern form of not most modern, but most recent form of kind of formal organization around abolition organizing, um, abolition of police and prisons is critical resistance, you know. Um, and then, you know, through the work of um, black feminist organizers and scholars, you know, like like Angela Davis, um, like Ruth Gilmore, who are also, um, you know, both of those, you know, they're both black Marxists and, and, and black socialists. And then of course, you know, people like Miriam Kaba, um, who have been, you know, like who were essential in terms of the reparations campaign in Chicago that won reparations for like the torture survivors of John Burge, um, in Chicago. Um, and so, so I think through that, and then for sure through like, you know, you connect it to just, you know, regular police accountability work. There's always been, not always been, but there's, you know, how I understand is, you know, just, two tracks and like the, you know, like the, um, I guess you could say, I don't know how you want to call it or frame it, but like, I guess let's say police accountability work. And one track was, you know, forms of like civilian control or democratic control of police and police accountability. So in Chicago, that looks like the, the, the CPAC, which would democratize police and have, you know, um, community control of police. And then the other track has been forms of defunding or abolishing police. And, and you know, the point of that is to, I mean, the point of both of those is to lessen police power. 
you know, and one sees it as putting police under democratic control. The other one says that like, we have to, um, you know, we have to starve the beast and we need to like not have policing and invest in other forms of safety, uh, public safety that don't, you know, criminalize folks and and punish folks. So that's, I mean, that's the context of where the demand comes from. The demand itself, you know, was, I think, more so like a spontaneous thing that happened. But, you know, for sure, I would I would definitely credit, you know, um, you know, Reclaim the Block, Black Visions um, and like the Minneapolis organizing that happened um, and like the Divest Invest campaign that they had had already won, um, I think, a year or two before that for really putting kind of like the general broader framework of defund the police out there um, and then people in the streets, you know, moving towards it. Um, and seeing that it's valid, you know, that's the only way, you know, a demand like that ever works. You know, we've been saying forms of defund the police, divest, invest, all this stuff for years before, and it's never broken through like this moment. So if, if you don't have people in the streets saying it, and you, if you don't have people in the streets escalating, then, you know, none of that stuff ma- matters in any, you know, you know consequential way in, in, until it, you know, it, it resonates with folks in that way. Right. And, you know, there's been some, uh, let's say, bad faith arguments uh, from folks even, you know, uh, on the left, not to mention uh, uh, plenty of arguments on the right, um, just about the supposed dangers of, you know, violent crime exploding if the police are defunded, about, you know, what the anarchy, uh, the anarchy that will befall American cities if if, if this were to happen. So just to, to get this out of the way, and I don't, you know, want to want to really linger on any of that too much. Um what is it that police, you know, mostly do and who else could do it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And just, and just before like what police do and don't do, um, you know, I, I suggest like those kind of folks, you know, they read, you know, proposals by Alex Vitale, proposals by Miriam Kaba that just recently come out and, you know, across the spectrum or, or even proposals by Andrea Ritchie, right. Um, you know, it's, you know, the defunding is, 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 is a process and, you know, and they talk about like the years that a defunding process can take and what that will look like and how when you defund from the police, how you invest in communities and at the funding levels, you should invest in communities. So um, sometimes I think it's almost like a straw man argument of that, like people are saying, you know, defund right away and then no sort of plan for how you transition to that, you know, um, and I mean, and, and then to the question of, um, and, and so, and, and so just to press that, it's really important to read what scholars and organizers are saying how to do this process, you know, um, and because it's out there and, and for people to pick up and read. Um, in terms of what, you know, the majority of what police do, um, and, you know, Marianne wrote about this, and I think she was qu- qu- quoting um, Alex, was that, you know, like, you know, for the most part, they don't do things that involve, anything remotely a violent crime or what you see on law and order, right? That that is not the majority of police work. Majority of police work is doing calls that um, are for sure nonviolent and for sure usually require probably some sort of mental health worker or worker who knows how to like find housing for people, um, working with homeless folks. So it's usually in that, in those types of things that like police do most of the work. And then it's like fines and fees enforcement, you know, it's like the tickets, it's, um, the broken tail light. It's all these other things where it's like, you know, do you need a person with a gun to, you know, check in with someone about why their tail light is broken? Thanks. Yeah, that's that's super helpful. And you know, it, it strikes me when you know hearing you talk about this, and of course, this, you know, the longer tradition of abolitionist um, black scholars talking about 
what we should instead be investing in. And it sounds to me a lot like the kind of, you could say, the care economy or just a kind of care society. And, you know, we've had um, in, in the kind of Green New Deal movement, people like Alyssa Battistoni, uh, who, you know, Kate and I work with, really emphasizing that kind of care work is also green work. Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious to hear you maybe say a bit more about how you think funds should be invested. Um, rather, you know, so we should be defunding police and instead investing in a lot of ways in the kind of care economy. And again, to me, that strikes me as being uh, something Green New Dealers should be kind of jumping all over um, as a completely convergent, you know, demand. Yeah, and I, and I mean, to me, part of the promise and like how, you know, Green, Green New Deal work has been done, especially through like through organizations like Sunrise is that like, you know, it's... Um, at least for me, how I look at it is like, you know, it's a socialist response to austerity politics, right? And that, you know, we need to figure out ways to democratize the economy and democratize our politics. Um, and through the Green New Deal, you do that. And, you know, and I think at least for like defund the police, like organizing and, and largely, I mean, defund the police organizing is only made possible and is within abolition, right? Like abolition is... Um, is like how we've gotten to this moment. And, you know, within that, it was, you know, like Ruth Gilmore always says something to the effect that, you know, uh, you know, abolition is, is also, is an affirmative project, right? It's about the restructuring of our economy. It's about the restructuring of our governing structures in our life. And then a huge part of that is, is that, you know, with austerity, with neoliberalism, um, there has been a huge um, divestment and strangling of what you, you would call a care economy, you know, and it and it, it came in one form with like the professionalization of let's say social workers, the professionalization of this type of work, and then you know putting in kind of carceral guidelines around that so that you know um, DCFS could take away your children and and all these other types of things, and then also then like with making you know care work precarious also, but you know defund like defund a police work. You know, we just don't want more government spending for the sake of government spending, right? We want government spending that actually democratizes government, um, that produces what you know, you know, like Warren, like progressives say they want, which is good government. <laughs> um, you know, like that's that's the type of things that we want to invest in. You know, so we want to do, you know, yes to education. If your education is within the context that there's no police in schools. There's no jail. Um, there, there, there's no jails in schools that you know, like accountability happens in a restorative and transformative way, not with suspensions and detentions, things like that. Um, and that the schools are democratic. That like you know, the kids can help shape the curriculum. Um, just and the teachers have control over you know what, what the curriculum looks also. Also, and it's not just admin, um, administrators, you know. Um, and so the same thing goes with like affordable housing. You know, we want to invest in affordable housing, but we want affordable housing that doesn't have a police department, which is what affordable housing in Chicago has right now. It has its own police department, right? And um, it has its own jail areas. And um, it has restrictions that even though marijuana, you know, weed is, is legal in Chicago, um, it's not legal in things that are owned by the Chicago Housing Authority. So, you know, like we want, you know, any of those things of like when we're investing that we want that those investments to like decarcerate and de democratize um, those areas. And then of course, like invest in areas of care. Um, but I guess, I guess it's like always important to, I think, say what you mean by care because other people will say these things and you're like, Oh, these are not good institutions to invest in as is, you know? Yeah, I hear that. And I am totally on board. It's everything you said. And I just want to 
I think I heard you um, bring in the Warren Good Governance um, crew, <laughs> which I really appreciate that yes. bit of coalition building. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. It's important. Well, no, because we're working with the socialist aldermen and, you know, and, you know, sometimes they're trying to move their their other progressive people, you know, and, um, you know, and, uh, and especially like Alderman Rosanna Rodriguez, she's been really important to point to them like saying, hey, defund the police is good government, right? Like we have bad government if like our main tool for public safety is through policing, you know, and that like, and we know like it's a racist and classist institution, but then we just keep on using this tool as if we're going to like reduce violent crime as if we're going to keep communities safe. Like you can't call you can't run on the whole good government thing and say yes to a budget, a city budget. That's like that where a disproportionate amount goes to policing. I'm sold. I'm, I'm, I'm ready for Warren to join us. <laughs> it's coming. I mean, I'm waiting for Bernie to join us. So let's just be honest about that. That's right. That's yeah. Waiting for that too. I'm growing the umbrella as we speak. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I mean, just to to sort of go a little bit further in that direction, right? I mean, this gets into something that you've written about recently, which is uh, on, on democratizing economic institutions and through that really sort of economic life more generally. So, yeah. you know, for folks who, who might uh, see these, uh, some of these things as farther afield, um, how would you tie the demand to defund the police? How would you say that links up to um, this, this other, you know, thing you've written about, which is, is work to democratize the federal reserve. Um, so, you know, uh, what is, I guess, <laughs> Explain a little bit, you know, what the Fed does and, and um, what the precedent is for Black freedom struggles making demands on that institution. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's something, too, maybe I, I forgot to say about the defund the police. You know, I think so much around defund the police thing and, like, shrinking police power and limiting police power to the point of, like, abolishing it one day is, is the idea that, um, you know, we want a vibrant working class life um, and that police are there to incapacitate working class organizing, right? Especially militant working class organizing around striking and mass civil disobedience. Um, and that if and that defund the police efforts allow us to build that that type of working class organizing that we need to win larger struggles around um, you know, whether it's social democracy or, or, or democratic socialism. And so and, and so then the connection to then like democratizing the Fed overall is that, you know, the you know, at least my analysis is, is that, um, and it's, you know, it's, uh, others analysis too. So like, you know, folks like Nathan Tankis, Rowan Gray, Jesse Meyerson, um, and, uh, and my boss Saka at, at Acre is that like, you know, we have a privatized public finance system at this point that like, if, if you're a city, you have to go to Wall Street and basically borrow this money. And um, there's really no need for that, right? We already have a Federal Reserve that can do all those things. And the Federal Reserve already does all those things, but it just does it for rich people. (laughs) And it does it for capitalists and it does it for finance in particular. Um, Now, they're not always doing that, but especially in times of crisis, they choose to do that. Um, And so the idea is that like the Fed is already allowing for cheap credit to finance to banks and to corporations and they could do the same thing to cities and, and municipalities right now at, at this moment they could easily do that yeah I, I i'm wondering you know to just to expand on that a bit could you say more about about what tools the fed has available to it um and, and kind of you know what a 
what a socialist monetary stimulus um, might might actually look like. So right now, the municipal bond lending market for cities um, almost seized up right until the Fed stepped in. And a lot of Wall Street doesn't even want to borrow. And if they do borrow, it's going to be on really high interest rates and like will be on predatory terms. Right. So, you know, right now, Wall Street wants to give us like kind of subprime rates to, to borrow things. Right. And so the, the, the Fed stepped in a little bit to kind of relieve that. Um, and like what a socialist monetary policy, like what the Fed can do is just um, always, always guarantee cities financing for all of our needs. Right. So, so federal governments don't have constraints um, if, if, if they can like print their own currency, right? So our federal government doesn't, but because we have such a, you know, like a, we, have, we have a federalist system, um, you know, like states and local governments can't benefit from that. So it would, it would basically, you know, asking the Fed to step in. And of course, I, I say in a democratic way, which still sounds kind of abstract, but um, would would basically federalize our current public finance system. Um, and then, you know, the, the powers that the, that the Fed actually has is, I mean, they have the power of cheap, easy credit. Um, so they basically have the power to never have us be in austerity again. Um, that's, that's the power that like anytime people say the Fed, I mean, Congress has this ability too, but I would, I would also argue the Fed doesn't. A lot of times you just don't think about the Fed in that way. The Fed basically has the ability to say, when someone says, oh, we can't afford that, we're too broke, the Fed has the ability to say, no, we can't afford that. Um, and the Fed has the ability that, you know, when we use kind of like the household kind of metaphor to describe how, you know, public budgets work, um, unfortunately, right now, that that's kind of how it is for city and local governments. And the Fed has the ability to not have us operate like a household um, because most governments shouldn't operate like a household um, because they can you know, they, they have their own currency and, and, and can make their own currency. But, and, and they also have the power to tax, right? So um, if you have the ability and power to tax, which cities do, um, then we shouldn't be having to deal with these kind of austerity, you know, the austerity economics. You know, we, we only deal with them for political reasons. There's no economic reason for why we should have to deal with austerity policies at all. Yeah, just, I mean, I want to say I'm asking for a friend slash for a listener, but I'm really asking for myself here. Um, If I understand, I think what you're saying, it sounds like what you're saying is basically the federal government just has far more flexibility and including the capacity to run deficits uh, at a very large scale. Um, And partly, like you say, because they print their own money. So federal government is totally unlike a city or a state government, which um, I think in many cases aren't even allowed to run deficits, but certainly don't have the capacity to print their own money and so on. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is that the the Fed, like the Federal Reserve Bank, could open a channel that would essentially allow cities and states to take advantage of the federal government's um, flexibility such that cities and states are also able to spend through like the hard times as well as the good times. Um, and therefore, they don't need to have this sort of austerity that we're seeing now. Um, if they say, oh, you know, our local tax revenue isn't sufficient to fund these worthy causes, then we'll tap um, the Federal Reserve Bank. And in that way, we'll be able to um, spend the money locally. Uh, It wouldn't depend on the federal government specific programs, but the cities and the states and other localities could fund things that are good based on um, very, very, very cheap credit from the Fed, which is taking advantage of this like more flexible federal arrangement. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And and, and I think part of what I was trying to do in the article was um, say that, you know, a lot of times 
we only, by we, I mean the left, they only talk about what Congress can do in terms of fiscal um, stimulus or fiscal support. And so I think that, you know, I was just trying to argue that we should think of what the Fed can do as like the floor of what we want. And the floor of what we want is to like never have an, uh, any form of austerity kind of reasoning, logic or politics have to bubble up um, and that the Fed can fix us to, for having that, that floor. And then, you know, fiscal stimulus or fiscal support should be looked upon as like the roof of however, how high we want to get up there. You know, like if we want something like the Green New Deal, this, that, the other, you know, there's all these other things that, that we would want, um, whether in good times or bad times, then that's what fiscal, you know, fiscal spending and, and um, fiscal support is for. So I, I guess my argument is, and maybe some people might disagree, that my argument is that even in the absence of fiscal support from Congress, we could have... Um, you know, a public finance system through the Federal Reserve where there, there would be no chance of austerity. Um, and, and we'd be talking about government spending more at the local level instead of contracting its spending. Right. And this, and it, there, there's a, a democratic political component, right? Because the Fed's governors, I think, if I understand right, are appointed by the president. So in theory, one of the things we could be demanding from like a Biden campaign is a commitment to appoint people to the Fed's board of governors who would be sympathetic to like a more flexible spending essentially um, at the city and state level through mechanisms that would be controlled by the Fed. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, and, and I would argue that the Fed is actually an easier target, like just the organizer hat on is an easier target than Congress in many ways that the Fed, you know, the people in the Fed are very self-aware about, um, you know, and there's like books on it. There's one book called Unelected Power. Um, they're they're very much aware of how undemocratic of an institution they are and how much responsibility that they have, you know. Um, and that's why sometimes they're constantly trying to push that responsibility onto what is called a Democrat. That's why, you know, lately Powell is always saying, Congress, we need more fiscal spending. You know, the Fed can't do it all is because they, they, they do realize in many ways their precarious nature and then they're fairly actually self-aware of like their history as the Federal Reserve and how new of how new central banking is a uh, phenomenon. And so, you know, if we just did a campaign on like the Chicago Fed on the, you know, all, all the different local feds and then the, the national Fed, you know, we can move them, I believe. And um, even regardless of what the president does or doesn't do, you know, they're, they're responsive to that. Um, and that's, you know, some of the work that FedUp has done. And I think the work that FedUp has done um, has kind of just like brought to at least left organizing circles, made public the idea of like what the role of the Fed is and how important it is. And uh, but even like some of their changes to the municipal bond um program at first it was only i think like maybe like it was it was like only five cities majority of those cities didn't even have majority or large black populations and you know there was just a few think pieces done within like the financial world and uh you know bloomberg's and brook and and uh and think tank world and then they changed their thing so they they can be moved if 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 the organizing campaign is done right you know great thanks and i i guess i'll just ask one more clarifying but it's almost more historical i guess i'm wondering like basically how much this is technical and how much this is kind of political. Um, my own kind of understanding of like post-war fiscal federalism is that over time in the post-war period, last several decades, um, you have increasingly powerful black politicians and black communities ultimately taking power in cities. Um, and then at the same time, you get this like increasing discipline of cities through like the bond market and and maybe also through the 
the Fed, where essentially the like the overall American power structure sort of cedes a lot of cities to black politics, but then cuts off their ability to actually fund um, what needs to be funded. And, you know, this really blows up, of course, after the urban uprisings of the 60s and like very nerdy side note. But I realize now that I think David Harvey's idea that neoliberalism is all about the fiscal disciplining of New York weirdly leaves out how much this is a story of kind of racial capitalism. Um, I think comes through much more clearly in Kyunga Yamada Taylor's book um, from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. So I know, I guess I'm like, is it, it doesn't seem to me like an accident that cities are in such a kind of cramped space um, in terms of their finances, because it kind of feels like there was a, a, an agreement to let cities be ruled to some extent or, or, or largely by Black power structures, but simply to then starve those very same entities of actual money. Yeah. And I think, you know, just pointing to the Harvey analysis, yeah, I think Part of the, the the trouble with when we tell those stories is we we almost naturalize finance, you know, that like finance is this thing that can't be socialized, that can't be democratized. I would say people don't know the technical stuff because of politics, right? And I think that's the you know that that's at least the the, the work that I'm trying to do, and other folks are trying to do in this area is, is is try to like bring it into like the political thing, and that like there is there is pressure points, there's organizing things that we can do on it, and and I think. Some of the, you know, some of the scholarship around, especially when 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 black mayors came to power, um, yeah, it tells primarily the story of like lack of fiscal support. Actually, you know, especially after the the, the Kerner Commission, um, and then finance coming in. Um, what it doesn't tell, some of the stories don't tell, is that you know Friedman's impact on what central banking is or isn't, and then of course Volcker's impact on what central banking is or isn't, you know, and that also had just as an important effect in terms of how um, cities, where cities could go to for relief and who cities could go to for relief. Um, and, you know, at that time, all people thought was that cities could go to either either to private Wall Street or or to um, Congress, um, when in fact they could have gone to the Fed and demanded the Fed do different things, you know, um, just as we put demands on the Fed, you know, Credit Scott King put demands on the Fed for a full, you know, like um, a form of, of full employment. We can also put those demands on the Fed and they can borrow us cheap credit just like they do to other, you know, their capitalist overlords, you know. Totally. Yeah, that's, I think that's really helpful to clarify. And, and I mean, gets to the, the thing I wanted to, to talk about next, which is that, you know, as the sort of like higher rungs of economic decision making through, you know, people like Milton Friedman and Volcker um, got sort of taken out really consciously out of democratic control um, and, and, you know, uh, abstracted in these ways that, 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 as you said, make it hard for, for folks to sort of think of even as, as being in the realm of, of politics um, or have been, you know, these other, other sort of things to, to, um, fuel economic development uh, into into local spaces through, you know, institutions like community development corporations, uh, yeah. often through block grants, more recently, things like opportunity yeah. zones. Um, there's a whole, you know, list of, of these types of these types of efforts. So, I mean, when you look at, at, at these sort of things um, to, to generate jobs in black and brown communities um, in, let's say, you know, more slightly neoliberal ways, um, and then, you know, you hear about, uh, efforts in the Green New Deal to, to bring, you know, green jobs to everyone. Um, what do you, what do you think some of the lessons are, uh, 
that Green New Dealers should should be paying attention to uh, from from this sort of realm of, of of policymaking. What should be avoided, and maybe you know what what should be really prioritized so that target investments to bring jobs and wealth into Black and Brown communities actually actually work and sort of don't repeat these these mistakes. Yeah, you know, I guess in these kind of moments, um, you know, I think you know I. I, I follow to like where Derek Hamilton and Sandy, Sandy Darity do around like targeted universalism that I think with some of the failings of the war on poverty is that um, it didn't necessarily have a targeted universalism, meaning that um, a lot of times, um, you know, when you mean test something, even in regards to like, like, like poverty, that's still a form of particularism. And um, it means that it's a, it's, it's a weak program politically at some level. Um, in terms of being able to like sustain attacks on it. And also too, I would say in terms of addressing the scale of what the problem is or isn't. Um, so I would, I would always say that any of those programs have to be universal first and foremost. Um, and then while also having targeting around knowing that, Hey, we're going to have to invest more in black, brown communities and communities that are divested from and then I would also say that, like, the simpler the program, the better. You know, sometimes some of, like, the complex things with these community block grants and all these other things, it's just there's so much stuff that you have to go through instead of just, like, making a simple, direct government program like, you know, like um, – and I think an example of a simple, direct government program is either Fed banking or, or, um, or postal banking, right? Um, it already uses institutions. It already uses infrastructure. Um, and then, it, you know, and, and because it would, be, it would be part of the Fed or part of like, you know, the United States Post Office, it would be subject to all the labor laws that come with it. I think the other thing that I, I always caution against, and this is kind of a debate in left circles, you know, at times people like they don't want the complete public, let's say mental health clinic or this or this type of investment in, in, in care institutions. But usually those are the ones that have the best labor laws, the best worker protections, things like that, right? And then, but like when you go into nonprofit world and allow nonprofits to overtake those things, they usually pay their workers lower, pay, you know, all those types of things. So, I mean, I, I will, I'll put on my good government hat again and just say like, I, I think you need government institutions. I believe in government um, and in that, you know, you need to have programs that, um have strong labor laws and strong wages. And, you know, I, I don't think there's ways that nonprofits do that. And like a lot of the community block grant stuff, at least in Chicago, how I see it happen, um, usually becomes just like a fiefdom for um, shitty nonprofits to do shitty things. You know, that's not to take away from the shitty things that government does either. But, um, you know, at least I would prefer people to have the right to organize, to have a union and to um, get paid a fair wage, you know? Yeah. I want those things. <laughs> and um, since we're talking about our, um, our desires and our plans, I'm going to ask you a, a really big question, which is, how do you think about what an abolitionist Green New Deal might look like? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the question. Um, I mean, my understanding of the Green New Deal, though, it does have a decarceral framework and understands that you can't, I mean, that like, that the environmental destruction that jails, prisons, and policing already does. Um, and, and that, you know, you have to have investments um, not in police for public safety, but in, you know, in, in a care economy. Um, so th at least that that's how I understand it already. Uh, maybe I'm misunderstanding it, but um, 
yeah i mean so i i think those things those things already happen and i think it's just i i, I think you know i was just having a talk with our, our working families affiliate uwf and um you know, they're like, yeah, divest, invest, it's in our menu of things that we care about, you know, but, you know, they've never done a, a, a priority divest, invest campaign, you know, and so I think for folks who are doing like Green New Deal stuff, and I know for sure we're about to work with, um, with Sunrise, um, is that, you know, you have to put that at the forefront that like, policing and mass incarceration work, efforts to stop policing and mass incarceration um, I really do believe um, help set the tone for like other movements and the possibility for those movements to function in like legible, meaningful ways. Um, and I think sometimes we're we're so in the fog of what incarceration and policing has done just in our regular lives, but also in terms of how we understand what left politics is and isn't and how different left politics is and isn't. Um, you know, in the black community, Latinx communities, in, in, in white working class communities, um, that we just don't we just don't see it anymore. You know, like we we really forget the history of that. Like the picket line wasn't just this parade just to have to like show whatever. The 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 the, the picket line was to defend us against police who were trying to like bring in scabs and fight and beat us down and come into the factory and take over the factory again. You know, and so you know we we kind of have to reclaim that history and understand that like the when we lessen police power. Um, it allows, you know, for things like Green New Deal, um, like Medicare for All, um, like Bernie Sanders, like to have, you know, like like democratic socialism to have like the leg- the legibility and the legitimacy it does within like within the public sphere. Yeah, I think that's such a good a good way of putting it. And I wanna I wanna sort of ask you about um how I think some of this work work seems to be having on on the local level. I mean, I, I am I'm continually sort of in awe of, of, of the work <laughs> happening in Chicago. Um, <laughs> Thanks. and Thanks. that just, I mean, maybe that sounds sort of strange, but, um, just a combination of, you know, things like you mentioned at the beginning, the Chicago teacher strikes, um, massive protests and organizing over police violence. Um, and you know, now there are, I believe a six member, is that right? Socialist caucus yeah. on the Chicago yep. city council. Yep. Um, yeah, and I mean, and and there, I mean, I, at least um, Carlos Ramirez Rosa is calling to bring uh, ComEd under public ownership, and yeah, yeah, and in recent weeks, you know, calling for cutting the CPD. So I'm wondering, you know, what what do you think is as, as someone who's been been organizing there for a long time, um, what does Chicago tell us about what is possible at the municipal level, um, and kind of how that can 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 or cannot, you know, there are limits there too. And, and, and how that sort of feeds into um, kind of building, building the sort of, of, of broad multiracial coalition um, needed to affect politics, you know, at, at every level. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that kind of separates, and this is, I mean, all anecdotal, but, you know, I, I think Chicago at least knows somehow why it doesn't mean we all get along. doesn't mean we're fine, but it, you know, like, people who are more in, in a quote unquote, you know, activist left and like more like in, you know, Black Lives Matter world and movement for Black Lives world. Um, so, you know, have smaller organizations, not with big bases, but usually do still are able to like galvanize a lot of people for a mass protest and um, do kind of like what more is like momentum organizing um, 
are also in conversation with, um, and also a lot of those people also do electoral work, right? And um, radical or socialist electoral work. So those those people also worked on Jeanette, Alderman Jeanette Taylor's campaign, who's is, is just a black socialist um, uh, alderman on the South Side. Um, also worked on Rosanna's campaign. Also worked on you know Carlos's campaign, um, and then also. Um, you know, are in community and are in communication and networked with, with CTU, with SEIU Local 73, um, with that. And like, at least when I talk to sometimes like my, my other comrades and other places, you know, I'm part of DSA, um, those lines of communication and those networks aren't quite there. Now, that's not to say like, it's all kumbaya at times, right? Like, you know, like when my homie page like said, like, you know, like, um, you know, fuck cops at the CTU thing, that was, you know, that was a point of contention and, and polarizing, right? Um, but I think, whereas I think other labor leaders would have been like, you know, we're never going to talk to these group of people again. We're not going to talk to you again or whatever, you know, like that wasn't the case, right? It was like, let's figure this out. Let's figure out how to make it work. And so, and and what does that lead to? I think that leads to that, like, you know, we do trainings together. That leads to that we do mass political education together. That leads to, um, you know, we fight campaigns together. Now, um, there's normal issues on you didn't support this campaign enough. We need this, all, all that other stuff. But at least it's in conversation and dialogue and like the fight is there. And even in like something like with the six socialist aldermen, you know, like, you know, they were there doing jail support to make sure like people, you know, friends of ours that got locked up were free. Right. Um, and then also demanding that the mayor like release all the, all, all protesters and also like making sure they're in conversation and community with us, you know, like to demand, you know, CPD budget gets defunded at 75% and invested in community. So I think all those relationships is what gives Chicago, you know, its strength. And it's not too much of like the, there's only this one way to organize, right? There's not like the only through kind of, you know, electoral stuff can you win, only through labor strike stuff can you win, only through kind of like movement organizing stuff can you win. Um, I think everyone knows that and then like tries to build that out. And I think that's, you know, a key part of, you know, Chicago strength and ability to like, you know, win on different levels. You know, I mean, I, I always want to caution, we haven't, you know, we haven't won one yet, but like, I think that, that, you know, that we're on a, a different path and trajectory from other cities. Yeah. And maybe just to build on that and to kind of close out this um, conversation, I'd love to hear you say a few words on what do you think the events of the last few weeks have made possible that would have been totally unthinkable otherwise. And, you know, feel free to talk about Chicago, feel free to talk about domestic politics, you know, nationally, international politics, just kind of thinking big here, what has suddenly become possible that that even a month ago or just a few weeks ago, we never would have imagined? Yeah, I mean, I think the most obvious is that, um, is, um, well, I would have never imagined a police station would get burned down and that majority of Americans would support it. And so that's like, first things first, like that's mind blowing to me. Absolutely. And then yeah. in that same city that, uh, you know, the, a veto proof majority would commit to disbanding the police. You know, um, if you would have told me that that was going to happen in Minneapolis after the murder of George Floyd, I would have said, no, like, I just would have, you know, like, I just like, no, that this doesn't happen. You know, they might be able to defund a little bit, this or that. So, um, I think, you know, just those two things in and of themselves is just like, at least to me, is kind of mind-blowing, shattering, like, not even possible, you know? Um, and unfortunately, at times, I feel like I've been seeing 
you know, fellow comrades in like the socialist left's like head explode as like those things happen in such a short amount of time. Um, but um, so I think I think those things. I think even like someone like 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 Alex had an article um, before all this happened saying like you know cut a billion out of I think the of the five billion of the New York Police Department's budget, right? And I think probably now Alex would probably say that's actually too little at this point, right? That like, that's where our imagination is where now, like most people are like at least cut half to 75% of a police budget. Like that, that's kind of like the starting off point for people. So I never thought that that would be happening in cities across this country. Um, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't believe that cities, you know, LA, Dallas, DC, Chicago, um, Atlanta, Oakland um, are having legit formal not divest, invest, but defund the police campaigns. And they're having people and they're turning people out um, that, you know, aldermen's are getting like, at least in Chicago, aldermen's are getting thousands of calls to defund the police, right? Like one alderman complained, said, stop sending me stuff. I support it. I've got 7,000 things. You know, people have to log in those calls and all that. So please stop doing it. I get it, you know? Um, Like all these kind of things just to me would have been just, unimaginable i mean you had de blasio who one minute was talking about hugging cops how much he loves cops he'll never defund and then he's saying okay well, at least we'll start off with 150 to, or 200 million i think he said some some sort of number like that same in la um so i think just those list of things um but i think the most important thing is that we have popular public support for a the idea that um police and having police solve public safety issues is is fundamentally wrong, you know, and it's fundamentally not a good thing, right? And I think that's like with, especially with um, the word, you know, the work at Color of Change in terms of getting cops canceled and then getting, I think, that other A&E cop thing canceled, like just kind of copganda shows in that way. You know, I think those are huge wins in terms of the, of like changing public support and public opinion around the idea that like cops are just not okay. Cops are not going to keep us safe. Cops are not cool. Cops are not all right, you know, and that and I think the public is on board with that now with that idea that like whether it's more of people who are more middle of the road, moderate, they feel that police need to be reformed. And then people who are more on like the progressive, you know, Warren, Bernie sphere feel like, hey, there needs to be some sort of defunding of police and putting those resources and things that actually, you know, um, ensure public safety. And I think that's like. You know, I think I think that's a big thing, and I and and I think the kind of at least within the socialist left, the thing that we have to figure out is not figure out, but I think really move on is just really understanding the connection to, you know, how defund the police and abolition really connects to how we build the power of of working class organizing in order to like win the other things that we want, and you know, and I think that's work that we need to do and explain and build on. Of the the last two weeks have been some indication. It seems like people's heads exploding is a the nice uh, time to have that conversation. Um, so, yes. on uh, on on that note, to more to more heads exploding um, and to <laughs> to that building our better future. Um, Jason Perez, thank you so much for for coming on Hot and Bothered. Yeah, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. That was Jason Perez. He is a senior research analyst at Acre, that's the Action Center on Race and the Economy, studying the connections between police violence, mass incarceration, and economic injustice. Along with his research and writing for magazines like Jacobin, 
You can find him rapping with the group BBU, as well as organizing with the Afro-Socialist and Socialists of Color Caucus of DSA. That's it for this episode. You have been listening to Hot and Bothered, a climate podcast in the time of coronavirus. We are hosted by Descent Magazine and produced by Colin Kinneborough. We are looking forward to catching up next week for our last episode of the season, as well as our happy hour on June 22nd for everyone who's been able to pitch in on Patreon. So until then, stay hot, stay bothered, and take care of each other.